we have that really short relationship with plastics. When we throw it away, there is no value in that. If someone can actually help pay people, then you set the incentives the right way. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we are talking about a solution to one of the world's largest waste problems. What are we talking about exactly? You remember the scene in The Graduate? Ben. Excuse me. Mr. McGuire. Ben. Mr. McGuire. Come with me for a minute. I want to talk to you. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir, you. Plastics. Exactly. How do you mean? There's a great future in plastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. I've said. That's a deal. <laughs> I think that joke worked in 1967 because plastics were not as ubiquitous as they are now. If you knew back then how big a boom plastics would be at the time, you definitely think twice about Mr. McGuire's advice. But as great as plastics has made our lives, it's a huge waste problem. We produce about 300 million tons of plastic every year. Half of that is for what we call single use, like water bottles. And as you've been hearing, about 8 million tons end up in the ocean. My guest points out that this ocean plastic issue isn't really America's fault. It's primarily happening in the developing countries. But we and the developed world aren't much better. A majority of our plastic ends up in landfills. We don't even recycle 10% of it. Another issue is that, until recently, there wasn't a very good way to process a large swath of our plastics we produce, the type 3 through 7 variety. My guess says his company has a solution for this. For one, he says he can process any kind of plastic, types 1 through 7. Their technology converts them into diesel fuel, naphtha, and waxes. These varieties can be co-mingled, same as you do in your recycling bin at home, and most critically, the process is continuous. You don't have to load up a batch of plastic, it passes through. That's pretty impressive because the process called pyrolysis is a method by which you chemically change plastic in a high-temperature, oxygen-free environment. So how do you constantly convey in new material into a machine that processes it in an airless environment? I'm sure some engineers out there can explain that. The good news is that this solution is cost-effective, relatively hassle-free, and the diesel produced is ultimately carbon negative compared to the fuel produced conventionally. While my guest is focused on plastics we produce before it is disposed, he believes this could ultimately create a profit motive for all that plastic in the ocean and even mining old landfills for plastics that have been lying there for decades. Turns out you just need the right technology to turn all that trash into treasure. My guest this week is Bob Powell, founder and CEO of Brightmark, a waste-to-energy company based in San Francisco. Bob says the plastics-to-fuel technology has been around for 15 years. Very soon after this recording, they plan to open their first large-scale facility in Ashley, Indiana, where they can convert 100,000 tons of plastics into about 18 million gallons of fuel. It didn't dawn on me until the interview, but one of the keys to making this business plan work is to have someone who will buy your fuel. 
Indiana may not be a classic oil field state, but Brightmark says they were able to secure a contract with BP to take all that low sulfur diesel they produce. One of the things I was also impressed to hear was that this Indiana facility, which is already running in a small capacity, hires former inmates to help sort and recycle e-waste from old electronics. In addition to the plastics operation in Indiana, Brightmark has also been operating synthetic natural gas operations such as one in South Carolina. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Bob Powell. here with Bob Powell, founder and CEO of Brightmark. And Bob, one of the biggest challenges, and this was coming from your website, was what they call plastics three through seven are notoriously difficult to process. So why is that? It's a good question. The reason why of all the plastics that we produce, and the numbers are from one to seven, the three through sevens are not recycled and most typically not reused is because the technology until very recently was not available on a scale and an economic way to actually renew and remake those plastics. And it has to do a little bit about the chemistry and all those kinds of things. But the bottom line is we didn't figure out technically how to reuse those plastics really until very recently. And just to be clear, your company can process plastics three through seven. I think the differentiating breakthrough for us is absolutely that we can take the three through seven plastics. We can actually take all of them, but the hardest to recycle plastics, we can and are taking them in our process, which was invented 15 years ago. We can take all the single streams in a commingled way, just as you would in your garbage throw them away. We can take them and turn them into usable products. Bob, the advantage is that you're able to co-mingle all of these plastics that you recycle and process. So what was the breakthrough that allowed that to happen? The breakthrough that allowed us to take all plastics and co-mingle them it really goes back to the original invention of our technology 15 years ago. The process, which is called pyrolysis, which has been known for a long time, but the invention allows us to take plastics and operate them continuously in an environmentally friendly way and allow both the usable products, the 93% usable products, and then the 7% that isn't usable to continuously feed through in and then out of the process. Previously, the only technology that was available on a commingled basis was batch type processing, mm -hmm. which didn't allow the volumes and then the cost efficiencies to really make our patented technology as it is work economically. I always love playing guess the technology. You said pyrolysis. Your website described the process that heats and vaporizes in an oxygen-starved environment. What's the difference there? Pyrolysis is different than gasification. The yeah. concepts have some similarities to them. A lot of fancy words for things, but pyrolysis, <laughs> we don't operate with oxygen in the environment. So when I said we're environmentally friendly, we don't combust materials. And the second aspect that would be different than gasification is we operate at a lower temperature. So the amount of energy we have to do to remake the plastics is much lower than a process like gasification. The advantages there are non-combustible. That gives us the environmentally friendly footprint. And the energy inputs make it much more cost effective relative to a process like gasification. And then three, finally, with the lower temperatures, we're not overcooking, if you will, <laughs> the materials, the post-use plastics that go into our process. So it has a lot of inherent advantages over 
that other type of technology. Bob, you have central facilities. I'm sorry, is it planned or is it in operation now? Yeah, the first of its kind facility, very large, is nearing completion. Okay. It's located in Ashley, Indiana. We actually have been processing plastics and creating the usable liquids out of it as we've gone through and beyond the testing phase into what now is getting close to the final completion stage. That plant will take, in its first phase, 100,000 tons of plastics out of the environment and create 18 million gallons of ultra-low sulfur diesel and naphtha, which can be used to remake plastic or be used as a gasoline additive, and then also waxes that come out of that particular project. So Indiana, how did you choose where to locate that facility? What led to Indiana? And did you have a client lined up who can supply you continuously with plastic with these hundred million tons? The location I was selected for a couple of reasons. The community was very excited about what we were doing environmentally, and they lobbied quite hard to have us locate the first of its kind. We're located very close to our customers. British Petroleum is the customer on the fuel products. And our customer, in terms of the waxes, is reasonably close as well. Now, in terms of it being a good location for plastics, there's a tremendous amount in and around that community. If you think of where we're located, close to Chicago, Detroit, and then Indianapolis. But the truth is... There's so much plastic in the environment that there's many different locations that we could and certainly will be building more of these facilities. Okay. So the plastic isn't being trucked from halfway across the country. Generally, when we design one of these facilities to renew plastics, what we're trying to do in terms of the logistics of getting the plastics in is make sure that if it's being trucked in within a day. Do you have rail access? We do. Okay. not using it now, but in the future facilities, and this would be in the developed countries, roads and then rail as well, which allows a lot of other great options out of it. Without giving too much away. What is the typical break-even cost for converting plastic to diesel and or naphtha? Let me just say, one of the inherent advantages of our process is it's very cost-efficient. Even in very low environments in terms of fuel prices, we have an ability to break-even or better than break-even. Even if the fuel prices are depressed a bit, we can still operate profitably in a very low fuel price environment. As we investigated the technology we were looking for, for these sustainable projects to work, whether it be plastic renewal or energy projects, what you need to have is a certainty that economically what you're doing will be viable on a long-term basis. Sustainable businesses create a sustainable environment. And that's what we have in our plastic renewal technology is the economics that work on a long-term basis. And Bob, it sounds to me like you were describing your process, being able to convert the plastic at a lower temperature. I would have to think that that also is helping with the overhead costs, if you will, of processing all this plastic. The energy efficiency is really important for two reasons. One is the costs are lower if our energy use is lower. And in our process, it is relative to other technologies we investigated. The second reason why is that if you use less energy, that means the environmental or carbon footprint of what you do is lower. We're using natural gas to heat our stainless steel vessels, which is where our plastic renewal process takes place. Using less natural gas or any form of energy means that your project, yes, it's economic, and two, 
it also has a lower carbon footprint. That brings up two points. One is, this is on the website, the process creates a net 14% reduction in greenhouse gases, even if the plastic becomes, say, diesel fuel. How is that a 14% reduction? This is with a study that was published by the Argonne National Labs, most plastics. They're created out of crude oil that comes out of the ground, and then methane or natural gas that comes out of the ground as well. The whole process of extracting crude oil and natural gas out of the ground has a fairly large carbon footprint. Methane emissions that come out of the wells themselves, and then the CO2, the carbon, in order to transport fuel to its location, that is the baseline that we measure against. What we do is we don't extract plastics or our product from the ground. We take plastics that we've thrown away. And so there's a tremendous carbon footprint savings, even when the parts of our products that are burned or combusted, that whole how you get to the product is much better from a carbon standpoint in our process. I can vouch for that. I worked in the oil and gas sector, did a lot of fracking work in Texas. It takes a lot of vehicles and everything to get to the point where you're actually producing. That is true. I'll talk about the synthetic natural gas that you're producing and some of your other projects in just a bit, but I know it probably has to be something that you guys are looking toward is if you're able to run your plastics processing off of natural gas, wouldn't that be great to use some of that green natural gas that you're able to produce at other facilities? Yeah, we actually have thought about using our renewable natural gas that comes from our projects in order to use it as a fuel source for our plastic renewal process. Now, we actually are using our own produced natural gas to help heat the plastic renewal process. When we take the plastics, what we're doing is we're taking plastics that we sort, shred, pelletize, and we put into a vessel. Part of that process, we create a vapor that turns into liquids which become the useful products, right? The fuels or the new plastics we can make out of it, the waxes. There's actually a gas portion that comes out of our process. And instead of letting that go into the atmosphere, we take that gas and we feed it back into the system and actually use that to help heat the stainless steel vessels that we use in our process. So it's great. There's a little bit of a closed loop aspect to that. And we're really happy because that reduces the carbon footprint of our processed renew plastics. Right. I'm going to switch gears for a little bit. Let's talk about this ocean plastic, right? We hear about all about in the news. So you probably know a little bit more about this than I do. I've always wondered, how does all that plastic end up in the ocean and waterways? My simple brain just thinks that it's buried in landlocked landfills. So how is so much ending up in oceans ultimately? The tremendous amount of plastics that we use globally definitely have a destination, many of them in the oceans and certainly in the landfills as well. The reason why they end up in oceans and even in landfills and other waterways, when we have that really short relationship with plastics, when we throw it away, there is no value in that. Most of the ocean plastics come from, let's just say, the top 10 rivers in the world, most of which are located either in Asia or Africa. And I've spent time in Asia very recently. And what you see is as people throw away and use their plastics, there are not as good waste management systems as we have in the developed countries. So they end up strewn all over the place and ultimately are going to end up 
in the different canals, the rivers that then flow out into the oceans. But the whole root cause of this is because we are creating waste very quickly and up until now haven't had an ability to capture the unlocked value out of that plastic waste. So United States, a lot of developed countries, they're not the ones causing most of this ocean plastic. That plastic is either being recycled or sent to landfills, right? The greatest proportion of ocean plastics are not created by the developed world. We do have an immense amount of plastic waste and our landfills are filling up. Regardless of whether it's developed or developing, the numbers globally are this. Of the hundreds of millions of tons of plastics that we've created, only 9% of those are recycled. 11% of those are actually put into incinerators to do things like produce electricity, not a great environmental footprint. So basically what you have here is an immense amount of plastics in the developed and developing world, 80% that have no value and are ending up in landfills or waterways. I would tell you that I think it's incredibly bad that we're filling up our landfills with these short life relationships we have with plastics. I think we have a problem both in the developed and developing world. We just have better economic systems in the developed world in order to facilitate waste management. I don't think we should waste anything substantially. And what my goal is, and our goal at Brightmark in reimagining waste is to avoid things being in landfills or waterways. Right. Would you ever have a plan to, I don't know, pull plastic out of landfills? Is that even feasible? (laughs) I actually think it could be feasible to mine landfills. I think plastics are one of the things that are unlocked from a value perspective that are already in landfills. Where we're starting is right now, I need to make sure that we can solve what we're producing in this moment now so that it doesn't end up there. If we've got that tackled, which I'm extremely optimistic and certainly with our process that we can do that, then I think we should look and consider reclaiming our landfills with reused waste of plastics and other types that are just sitting out there in big holes in the ground. Right. I remember as a kid, plastic was the stuff that stays in the landfill. So after a decade or two, that's pretty much all that's left in the landfill, right? Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, if you go to a landfill, I've been to landfills here in the States and other developed countries, and then in the less developed countries, developing countries as well, you see pretty clearly what happens, which is things of use and high value are pulled out of those waste streams. Yeah. There's a lot of metals, those types of materials, e-waste. When you create create value, things don't end up in landfills. Absolutely. So back to this ocean plastic, and this is the question I've been most wanting to ask you coming into this interview, is it would appear that you have the tech to process all this plastic that ultimately ends up in the ocean. Clearly, you have thoughts about how to get to it in the middle of the ocean. I'm going to let you paint that picture. What would that look like? Would you set up a platform out there in the middle of the ocean? What would be the logistical way to get to it and then ultimately process it? There's some really good efforts out there to figure out how to get the plastics out of the ocean. Some may have read about the different types of skimming barges. We actually look to partner with different organizations that are working on the ocean plastics problem. I think it starts with if someone like Breitmer can actually help pay people to bring the plastics back in, then you set the incentives the right way. You'd want to build something on shore, right? Let it bring it back to shore, correct? 
Yeah, what we do at Brightmark is we're shore-based uh, operation, and so we would look to have the plastics brought back on shore. Certainly, there are ideas that we float in from an innovation standpoint about, wow, what if we put one of our facilities on a barge and we're right out there where the plastics are in the ocean? Not ready to go there yet. <laughs> I think if we just partner with great folks who are pulling the plastics out and provide them the right incentives and bring them to our onshore-based plastic renewal facilities, then I think we've probably got a solution that really works there. And it's very pragmatic. Bob, this month, the Department of Energy announced a plastics innovation challenge to recycle plastics, keep them out of the oceans and the ecosystem. How does this affect your business plan at this point? The Department of Energy's announced plastic innovation challenge, I think is a great one. And the way I look at it, there are so many smart people out there. I think it's really gonna help us solve these problems we're trying to tackle like the plastics problem. So while I'm not directly participating, when we saw that, what we saw was there are great partners out there that we could work with or that maybe even we don't work with who find other really interesting ways to deal with how we can recycle plastics. Whether folks that participate and are successful become our partners or not, we think it's awesome. And then I don't want to forget about your other business. This is, I believe, what you've probably been doing longer than your facility in Indiana, of course, is you have those renewable natural gas efforts. You're primarily focused on animal waste, correct? Right. Our renewable natural gas projects are right now focused mostly on animal waste. We do have a project that does take food waste as well. But the animal waste, we're taking manures predominantly that otherwise, as they decompose, would create methane emissions and then put them into a digestion process to create negative carbon, renewable natural gas that is put in pipelines, but it's negative carbon because what we've done is we've offset the impact of the greenhouse gas, the methane emissions that would have otherwise gone in the atmosphere. The other thing that is really good about our process as well is the solid content that comes out is very environmentally safe and nutrient rich. The local farmers can actually utilize the solids that come out and then apply in a way that is better. I think they call it land application. Yeah, that's right. One of the things I've talked to you about people who've done this before, is it a challenge to keep up a steady supply of the animal waste? I mean, you never thought you'd need more of it, but... (laughs) You definitely need to make sure you have enough of a critical mass of either farms in a location or a single very large farm. But for those of y'all who've been out on farms, there's an awful lot of manure that goes on there. So you can see there's an abundance of it out there. But to make the projects work, you definitely want to make sure that you're in and around a cluster so that the economics work. Certainly. And I've spent a little bit of time going around North and South Carolina. It's big chicken, (laughs) big pig. Bob, one of the things I'd like to say about the podcast that I do is I cover both oil and gas and electricity. And you're one of the rare guests that really does dabble in both. Very exciting stuff you got going on over there. Well, I appreciate that. Certainly my career for many years, I've been involved in many different forms of power generation, certainly oil and gas, as you mentioned as well. And it's been an interesting journey. Just really excited to create these solutions that allow us to reimagine waste and create useful products of value out of them and really do it in a way that where we're creating 
circular solutions that eliminate that waste and then reuse our resources. We're excited about it. And you're right, we span a couple of different areas. Very good. Bob, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with your thoughts on natural gas. One of the cleaner forms of fuels that we use, we can certainly do a lot better. And I think renewable natural gas is one of the ways on a negative carbon basis we can do much better. Crude oil. Certainly fueled the industrial economy. I think it's time because the environmental footprint is waning, certainly for fuels. So I think there's an opportunity to do much better with crude. Nuclear. Very low cost, great potential. I want to make sure that we've done a really good job of managing the catastrophic potential issues, but could be a very low cost power solution. Coal. And I always caveat carbon capture. For me, coal is old world. With carbon capture, still not totally convinced, but willing to be convinced because there's a lot of great ideas out there. Wind. One of the renewable energy early saviors. Very excited about what has been done in the wind area. Solar. Personal favorite of mine. At one time, it was a high cost. Now it's low cost. I think it has the potential to change the energy dynamic globally. Biofuels. And I'm wondering if you think of yourself as a biofuel. In some ways, we are biofuels, particularly for the renewable natural gas uh, part of our business. Biofuels, great opportunity because the greenhouse gas offset, as long as we're using fuels, biofuels could be a really good answer. Hydroelectric. Low cost. I like low cost. I just worry about the damming of the waterways and some of the environmental impacts, but it has served us quite well for many years. Geothermal. A great resource that has a lot of viability where we have geothermal ability to do that in places in the world. Energy storage. The golden ticket. (laughs) With energy storage, we solve so many of the world's energy problems. We'll get there, and I'm very excited about the future with that. Electric vehicles. Lots of zero to 60 speed and a great option as opposed to emitting carbon. Energy efficiency. The cheapest form of energy you can use, because when you eliminate waste, that is the absolute best option. And it sounds to me like that's part of what you're after as well. And then finally, fusion power. I think of... Back to the future. (laughs) (laughs) That's my word association with fusion power. Seriously, I think that has a great potential in the future. Clearly not here yet. All right, Bob Powell, Brightmark, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Jay. That was Bob Powell, founder and CEO of Brightmark, a waste-to-energy firm out of San Francisco. That renewable natural gas facility in South Carolina also provides both heat and electricity for the local area. I want to thank Bob for his time, as well as Alejandro Ramos at ICR for setting this up, and my longtime friend Melita Elmore for bringing this to my attention. You can find plenty of pictures on energy-cast.com, as well as on Instagram and Parlor at Host Energy, and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release so far no complaints be sure to leave us a positive review on itunes that gets the word out music was produced by sean stroop at stroop loops that wraps up episode 97 be sure to join us next week when we learn how microgrids may be playing a larger role for many of us no matter where we live until then i'm jay downhauer we'll see you next time